The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we welcome our very special guest, Cole Arthur Riley. Cole Arthur Riley is a writer, liturgist, speaker, and in all of those things, she is seeking a deeply contemplative life. She is the founder and writer of Black Liturgies, a project seeking to integrate concepts of dignity, lament, rage, justice, rest, and liberation with the practice of a written prayer. We'll talk about all of that and why prayer during our conversation. Her liturgies, which are found on her social, have become somewhat of a, of a kind of viral offering in the last nine months, which is where I learned of Cole's work. It was sent to me many, many times. But what I did not know was something you'll hear soon, which is that the process of finding her voice has been and continues to be a lifelong journey for her. It is worth noting that the conversation that we had was actually recorded before the holiday break at the end of 2020. And so you will see a glaring omission in that we do not talk about the news that is happening today and last week. However, her words and her liturgies are just as relevant. And if you want to hear her current commentary, you should keep up with her Instagram and website. All of that is in the show notes. With no further ado, here is our very special guest, Cole Arthur Riley. Cole Arthur Riley, thank you for being here. This is a big deal for us on the show. And the first question I'm going to ask is a question I don't love be being asked because I don't like it when people ask me to introduce myself. I always feel super odd and I don't know, I don't know what to say. However, I wanted to know if you could introduce uh, yourself and share a bit about your life. Sure. Yeah, I, I would love to. So I was raised by a black agnostic father and um, he later married my stepmom who is white with Jewish roots and some Catholic roots, um, but we were not a religious family. Um, you know, we would celebrate the rare Jewish holiday with my Zadie, my stepmom's father. And when I went to visit my birth mother, my older siblings would sometimes take us to church to get free lunches. But apart from that, I had very little connection to the church or any kind of Orthodox Christianity for the majority of my life. But what was cultivated in me from a very young age was a love of writing. Um, my father would have us write him poems and little stories. We would have writing competitions all the time, or he would have us write things in exchange for getting out of chores. Huh. Yeah. And so for me, I, I was a very quiet, very shy little girl. I had selective mutism into elementary school and only really spoke freely in front of a few people. So I sometimes say that writing was my first voice. It was a way I was comfortable being seen and speaking. Do you remember what you were thinking in the moments when you were selectively mute? 
I don't remember much. I just remember feeling, um, I think I carried a lot of shame in my body um, when I was little, uh, as most of us do. And just, I remember not wanting to be seen being a huge part of my uh, early childhood and, and speaking meant being seen in some way. Um, but for, you know, for reasons mysterious and probably just pragmatic, writing um, did become a very deep form of voice for me, even when I didn't have a perceivable sense of spirituality. Wow. Was your dad a writer? He wasn't. My dad is not a writer. Um, my dad, he he didn't finish high school, actually. Um, he, he later got his GED. He was a, a single teen dad, 17 with two little girls. And um, so he is kind of uh, an enigma to me to this day of kind of what drove him. But education and words just always seemed very important to him that we would be able to articulate our emotions and our thoughts. And I think he just wanted more in terms of expression and education than he had. How long did you have this selective mutism? Yeah, into it lasted a, a little bit into elementary school, and um, I started to. They had me evaluated actually, and uh, which placed me into a gifted program that was great in terms of figuring out what I really needed in order to um, feel comfortable speaking. I started taking extra speech classes and things like that, uh, which. I'm very grateful for. Um, I had ha- had several speech impediments just because I hadn't been practicing speech as much as my peers at that point. It's just fascinating that the voice that you're writing, like at that early age, in some way percolated with you needing to be able to express your voice, but not being able to do that uh, through the actual mechanism of of speech. I've heard of people that have had selective mutism, but I've always been curious if it felt like at the time a choice, like I'm stopping talking now, or if it's a more like just clouds come over you and you just know the words can't come. Do you remember if it was one of those two or something else? It's a really good question. And honestly, no one's ever really asked me about this, strangely enough. Is it okay to talk about it? I don't want to be too personal. I just realized I should have asked if I can ask about this. Is it okay? No problem. I don't, yeah, I don't mind talking about it. I think that it was, maybe I knew innately that I could, but it feels kind of like uh, despair isn't maybe the right word, but a story that circulate to my family is um, I I remember I was maybe four and we were living in California and my dad had people over in the living room and my hand had gotten stuck in the um, sliding screen door and I could not. And I, I remember being in so much pain and just thinking like, you need to tell, you need, you need to call for your dad and just not being able to muster the words. And, and eventually my sister found me crying, thankfully. But um, it was moments like that where I'm like, I know what needs to be done, but it's kind of this bodily, like, I don't know. I just can't. Um, just can't do it. Yeah. So as a child then, thank, thanks for um, talking more about that, by the way. Sure. Um, yeah. So as a child, I mean, this this writing percolates in you. Like how, how does faith 
begin to percolate more. You said you went to church sometimes for the free lunches, which I fully appreciate. <laughs> but how does that, because I mean, now fast forward, you are the content and spiritual formation manager at Cornell, right? Like the whole, th- you're, it's a whole thing. So where does that start? I was a senior in high school. And um, I remember we had a conversation in English class about relative truths. And we were reading a lot of existentialist fiction at that point. And that's when I, I really started to think deeply about human origins and certainty and faith. Um, and to kind of make a three-month journey short, I that propelled me to, compelled me to start reading about the 12 major world religions, which I took some time to do, found myself gravitating to Judaism first and um, eventually Christianity. And I think just by virtue of the kinds of Christian thinkers I ended up reading, Bonhoeffer and Simone Weil and eventually Howard Thurman, my Christian formation just became completely entwined with activism and justice and the social good, um, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah, because it says in your bio, it says, at present, Cole is concerned with topics of dignity, lament, belonging, justice, rest, and liberation. Does that all begin to start to take root there during that process of kind of theological examination mixed with understanding of the world? Yeah, I think it did. Um, And especially it was the end of my senior year of high school. So I was transitioning into college, um, which we know is a, is a huge kind of, uh, I don't know, awakening into (laughs) all kinds of social justice needs and different kinds of voices. And my parents, um, while they weren't spiritual, they carry very deep convictions around equity and diversity and inclusion. I mean, they're a black and white interracial couple. And so we had open conversations about race my whole life. Um, And then going into college, that expanded even more into other areas of justice. I began traveling abroad um, and serving in that way and and learning and kind of became really interested in international engagement and uh, my global citizenship. And so that was happening in the university realm as I was kind of coming awake to all these Christian thinkers um, in books. And that's also when I started to attend church was um, when I went to college. And I had a few key mentors who, they didn't tell me what to believe, but they were good about giving me resources to say, here's what this person, this person, this person (laughs) um, about this spiritual matter. And um, I think that was really healthy and good for me. Do you remember in college, because a lot of the people listening are right in that age range, right? They're in the moment where they are post high school, well, in college or college age and seeing the world kind of start to unfold before them and wondering how to, how to contextualize what they're realizing. Do you remember one of those moments that was particularly kind of shattering or soul opening for you and kind of how you, how you processed it? So I had been doing a lot of, um, a good deal of trips abroad and trying to engage other cultures. And I began to feel real 
a deep sense of guilt and um, a sense of a real deep sense of responsibility in some of those trips. And, you know, my friends and I would return home and um, kind of have these like dramatic, agonizing, you know, few weeks of reorienting and uh, and wondering about the people we had met. And it took it took time. I think uh, one of those big moments for me was to realize the role that I had positioned myself in um, was a savior to some extent, was superior to some extent, was believing that my existence are, you know, westernized culture um, is what's safe and good and like the path, <laughs> the path to freedom and all of these things. And um, when I began to to be honest with myself about those things that I thought about the pity that I felt and how unhelpful that pity really is, how it perverts any true pursuit of justice and love, it can be argued against. But for me, it definitely perverted those things for me. When I became honest about that, it was so much easier to learn and um, not like consume other cultures, but to experience them as one part of the image of God or one one distinct expression of the image of God. To believe that there is something very unique and profound at work in the Dominican Republic um, that in mystery reflects God in a distinct way was very important for me. I, I don't think I would pro- I'd be writing the way that I am today if I hadn't had that realization in college of like this shared bearing of image, this shared and uh, diverse bearing of the image of God. I don't know how old you are, but I'm guessing you have not been out of college for all that long. Am I? Is that fairly accurate? I'm like, thirty. Um, okay. So yeah, I, I not not that well. I guess doesn't seem that long to me, but I suppose it is. Yeah. (laughs) I I guess I'm just curious, like the punchline we're getting to is people certainly know you're writing at this point from Black Liturgist, which has become just, you know, extremely popular. And so I'm curious, the intervening time, how does this idea begin to, to take root in you? And how did you finally get to the place of starting this, this voice? After I graduated from college, I began um, attending some Anglican and Episcopal church services. I eventually went to work for an Episcopal church in Philadelphia and was really drawn to the the beauty of the liturgy. I ended up majoring in English writing and English literature, and so I just kind of can fall in love (laughs) with a a good sentence and found a lot of that in the Episcopal Church. I became confirmed in the Episcopal Church as an adult. And then fast forward, as you said, I now work as a content curator. I I write and curate content for a Center for Christian Studies at Cornell. Um, And so I had begun incorporating written prayer into work with students writing them myself, but also finding them in other places, which kind of grew grew the love, um, grew the love for written prayer in me for sure. Um, and so I began Black Liturgies about six months ago in July of this year. And I began it because d- for all of my love of um, 
Anglican liturgy, I will say there are seasons um, when it becomes uniquely difficult to pray words written by a white man. And in the wake of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and the resurfacing of the murders of Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain, I found myself in one of those seasons where the liturgy that I love and hold you know, dear and sacred just didn't feel like it was capable of speaking to my blackness in the way that I needed it to. Um, and so I thought, you know, I, you know, I bet other black Anglicans are feeling similarly right now. I'll start writing these kind of supplemental prayers um, and sharing them and we can hold them together in community. Um, and I knew early on that it would be a space born from my blackness, you know, for my blackness, but also that I wanted it to be held by a multitude and a diverse multitude at that. And I wanted the space to have a certain fidelity to concepts of dignity, lament, anger, rest, liberation, things that aren't necessarily always given space to breathe in evangelical spaces. Yeah. You're touching on the question that I have, which is I'm curious who you're writing to. Like is if you're is are you sitting down and seeing a person who the the words are being typed to is the person you is it like who is the person or is there a person is that an oversimplification the prayers um i really just try to i mean i don't want this to sound cheesy but i really am trying to um write to god and and i don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out who is going to resonate with it and who won't I know this is the prayer that I'm carrying on my heart, either because of a conversation I've had or something I've read or just the circumstances I'm in um, or a friend's circumstance. Um, I am much more concerned with that than, you know, who's going to identify with the words that I'm praying. But now when I have like a preface um, uh, that sometimes it's not a prayer, I'm just kind of saying a statement or it might sometimes is a quote and those it, it really differs. I think sometimes it's it's always for blackness. I, I mean, I have to be honest and unapologetic about that. But sometimes it's two white people or a dominant culture, but for the purpose of black people bearing witness to someone saying these things to a white person, if that makes sense. Like there's it something does. powerful and and hearing like oh. This is this is being said, and and, and it needs to be said. Um, but I think more often than not, it, it probably is um, just kind of I hope oriented toward God. And um, if other people identify with it, I think that's lovely and beautiful. Um, and if they don't, I think that's fine. I, I I really believe that there's something mysteriously healing about black words, black prayer being held by white people. I think it's really important. And so um, I often have white people message me in um, DM me and say, is this okay? Like, can I, can I use this? Can I share this? And I, I, I love that they're thinking about that um, and trying to be careful about not colonizing the work. But um, yeah, I absolutely think, you know, share and hold it and hopefully God will give you a sense of which parts of these prayers um, are meant for you and about you and which parts of these prayers are meant for you to just bear witness to. I'm realizing as you're speaking that there are 
people listening that likely don't hold the same or that possibly don't hold the same value in the words of the Bible that you do. And so I would like to ask you, because I know that part of your work is you work with spiritual formation. Like you understand this this question, you understand this thinking. And so a lot of your work comes from passages in the Bible. And I'm curious why you choose to go back to this this document as a way of conversing with God. Like what is, you could have chosen a lot of quotes and you do put some other quotes in there, but a majority of the quotes, a majority of the things that you're writing and the things that you thought would be most relevant for us in this moment are from scripture. Why is that? I'm glad that you ask, but also a little nervous to answer. Um, I think, I think scripture is beautiful. I really do. I think it's, I just think it's beautiful. The story, um, the the images, it's it's a very image-rich text. And then it's the the threads throughout it. There are connections that are just so poignant and um and like steady is the word that comes to mind. And it's also complicated. I I feel like it's a, a very complicated holy text like many, and I don't mean to say that others aren't, but it's a very complicated holy text and that there's things that don't quite make sense, that don't quite sit well. It's a a document of tension, I would say, for sure, um, if you're trying to make sense of it alone. Um, And it requires a trust that I'm not naturally given to, (laughs) a trust in like... um, the work of scholars and other people to interpret the text, a trust that God will make things uh, re- relevant, for lack of a better word, will make things uh, come alive, you know, in, in, in certain times, in certain ways. It requires this kind of belief in me that I think is good for my soul personally, <laughs> Because I'm given to skepticism and doubt and to uh, despair whenever I'm in tension. And I think the Bible kind of demands hope out of tension um, as opposed to despair. And I don't know if any of that makes sense, but... It does to me. And thanks for answering the question. Um, so it's, it's so interesting because you and I had prearranged already. I, I asked you in advance, would you mind reading one of your liturgies and you said, sure, do you have one in mind? And I picked one that spoke to me that I read a while ago. Um, I think the day it came out. And now in light of knowing a bit more of your story uh, has taken on a just a whole expanded meaning. So uh, having prefaced with that, could I ask you to read um, one of the liturgies that you wrote? I think it was published June 27th. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'd love to. Thank you. The preface for it is this. You don't get to be a voice for the voiceless because there is no such thing. All, even the silent and mute, have a holy voice that stirs and pleads within them. Our task is to amplify voice, not replace it. In the prayer, God who spoke the cosmos into being, We confess that in speaking up on behalf of the oppressed, we too soon become enamored with the sound of our own voices. Our egos spoil even our best intentions. When the voices of the vulnerable are drowned out by the cacophony of status, image, and defensiveness, would you bring them trumpets? 
that they might have their resources to make their presence and dignity known in a world that is numb to them? Would you protect the sacred in their words, that they would be heard and honored and believed, for they too contain the divine? Who doesn't get to be a voice for the voiceless? Who are you, who are you speaking to in that moment? I'm speaking to, to everyone, um, really. Uh, I think we all possess different spheres of power and um, even even myself who, you know, as I mentioned in my story, I have a lot of silence, um, a, a silent world in my past. I can be given toward, yeah, wanting to center myself in moments where I, I need not be centered, um, where my voice uh, doesn't need to be the one heard. I think we all have a compulsion toward that. And it's, I, I don't think it should lead us into shame. I think it often is because of some insecurity, some desire for love and affirmation, or it's because of some, you know, some level of guilt that we feel. And so in our efforts to advocate and um, work towards justice, we can become enamored with the sound of our own voices. We can let our egos grow louder than the cause itself. And there are a lot of, I hate when people blame young people for things <laughs> about, but I will say that, you know, there are a lot of young people right now ready and willing to get behind something that they believe is right and advocate for goodness and truth and justice. But I think we, especially as young activists, can too often position ourselves in the role of saviors. And this rhetoric of voice for the voiceless has become so popular. Um, and I've always had a very visceral response to it. As you know, um, when I was young, I didn't need someone to speak for me. I needed someone who was willing to wait, wait with me, who would make space to hold my words, who took them seriously and would tell other people to take them seriously. And so I've become very disinterested in any march or movement that is not organized by those affected by the impetus for the movement, you know? And I, I touched on this, but we have to really become honest about the level that ego and image can drive even our best intentions. It doesn't mean we don't do the work, you know? Even my best intentions are tainted with certain ugly ugliness, a certain ugliness. Um, but in Becoming honest about that, I become a fiercer and more effective advocate for justice. It dawns on me, I, I inherently understand the point of liturgy, but that is because I am an Anglican Episcopal and it speaks deeply to me and I'm drawn to that. But there are people that have not grown up in this faith tradition, have not had any sort of experience with any kind of liturgy. Um, I'm curious what it does in us and for us, why why liturgy? I think liturgy is formation. It's um, it's a habit. It's a a ritualed existence, and I think words of ritual, especially more recently, can be used in a pejorative sense, which is really unfortunate. You know, some see it as this mindless, heartless thing that you just do because it's tradition. Um, but for me, I found ritual and a connection to tradition in my ancestors to be a life force in my spirituality. I think there's something 
you know, profoundly beautiful and knowing that there are millions of people who have prayed the same words as me in different languages, uh, not only across space, but time, you, you know, that in liturgy, the body of God would transcend. So I think ritual and repetitive action, it forms us, you know, obviously in scientific ways, but also very mysterious ways. I'll say this, when I when I first attended an Anglican service, I joked to a friend how exhausted I was. <laughs> it was just so much doing, like you're standing, you're sitting, you're kneeling, you face this way, face that way. And up until that point, I was accustomed to a very disembodied spiritual experience, Um and liturgy is not that. It's very embodied. Uh, so in the Anglican church, for example, you have not only a movement in song, but you often have smells. Um, you have colors that bear meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, you receive the Eucharist and engage in a holy tasting. So it's a, it's a liturgy that all but drags you into the richness of an embodied spiritual experience, um, which is important. Yeah, I had a priest say to me at one, at one point, we won't let you miss the meaning. So if you're not into hearing the words one day, you're going to zone off and you're going to look at, you know, just the symbols that are on the wall and that's going to suck you in, or you're going to, you know, be totally not paying attention and you're going to smell something and that's going to pull you in. But the liturgy really is the whole service is, is all encompassing. Okay. So in our last few moments together, I'm curious and kind of to zoom out and break the fourth wall here, but your work has gone from black liturgists is new. It started mid 2020, as you said, yet it has grown and become very popular very fast. I'm curious how that squares with you. Well, it's been really healing. Um, I wasn't expecting that to be an outcome, but it has been incredibly healing to see my words held by so many people and to forge a community that's striving for a common language for their faith that you know, speaks true to them. Um, I used to be very critical of social media and still largely am. Um, but I would kind of sneer at these connections people would say they would make, these friendships that people would say they made. And I regret that um, now that I've seen it up close and I have formed friendships um, and I have found a greater sense of belonging, being able to speak with people who are, you know, looking for common concepts of God, but aren't in physical proximity to me. So it's been very good, but I'll say I'm also very wary. I'm I'm very wary of how I may be being formed in this time. And I I just have to contend with the fact that I'm not convinced anyone was ever meant to receive the affirmation or rejection of 50,000 people at once. Um, I certainly am not convinced I was meant for it. And so I've been asking myself a lot these past two months, you know, how is this forming me? What risk does it pose to my prayer life? What risk does it pose to my sense of self? And so with a few trusted others, I'm discerning what writing as a calling could look like, what continuing this would look like, and how to be strategic about boundaries and decisions that will preserve my integrity and allow for my spirituality to continue to be formed in freedom, you know? Yeah. It strikes me as quite a movement from a little girl that couldn't, that wasn't able to use her voice to get her father to help her get her hand out of a screen door to literally influencing and having a voice that goes beyond what most people could ever imagine. 
the movement in a short period of time is pretty stunning. I don't think it's a question. It's just an observation. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's wild when you put it like that. And I'm really grateful that you drew out some of my like early childhood story because I haven't necessarily thought about it deeply in relation to like where I am now, specifically in relation to like voice and, and speaking. So powerful. Well, thanks for sharing it. Okay. Uh, Last question is it is now in the airing of this 2021 and a lot of conversation about yay, 2020 is over and 2020 has become synonymous with its own. It's its own thing. Now 2020 gets its own definition, but at the same time, 2020 is not over in many ways. And so I'm curious how you reconcile the idea of having some measure of hope for the future while at the same time sitting in the reality of the present. Oh, that's such a good question. I think 2020 is, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to to move on and kind of forget. Like there often is with hard seasons um, and it's understandable because it's very painful to, to wade in, in painful memories. But I think I have found so much goodness um, and hope and practices of memory as I'm trying to hope. I think remembrance, I think there's a reason why in scripture, if if you are a Christian in scripture, you'll just see again and again um, these habits of memory, um, God requesting that his people remember feasts and festivals and these physical Ebenezer's, these these physical um, acts of remembrance that I think we can learn a lot from. We can learn a lot from as we travel into this new year, making a point to intentionally revisit memories. If, if that means physical places, I've done this with um, students who um, are leaving the area where we will go to a place together and um, just hold space for a memory um, as we're saying goodbye. And I think it's a really good practice for grieving, um, but also for just future storytelling. We want to be able to tell this story well um, and to honor it well um, someday as we begin to tell it. And if we're to do that, we need to do our best at preserving a rich story, and that comes with all of its lament and all of its rage and all of its injustice, and we don't have to dilute that at all in the name of hope, but it also can include hope. Yeah. In the early days of The New Activist, I used to fancy the idea of asking the same guest the same question every time at the end, and I guess I thought it was a clever podcasting thing. (laughs) And then I was like, what are you doing? Just ask questions about the guest. But I have not asked this in a long time, but I am curious how you would define the word activist, because we named the show The New Activist, and it's a purposely loaded word. But I'm curious, as a person who crafts words and has thought about activism, probably more than much more than most people, how do you define that word? An activist is a person who is committed to a journey toward justice and truth and reconciliation. I think that the the word commitment, I I don't know if that's the strongest word, but I mean for that word to embody a number of adjectives like marching, like writing, like doing, like speaking, you know, but my hope is that when we use that word, a commitment to the the journey toward justice and reconciliation and truth, 
we mean that there will be actions that uh, along the way that we will do that are true to ourselves and who we are and who we've been made to be and what we're interested in, that we would then wield those things in the name of, of justice. Well, my deepest thanks to Cole Arthur Riley for her time and for her work. To keep up with all of her writing, go to blackliturgist.com. That will also send you to her social and everything. Make sure that you are subscribed and paying attention to Cole Arthur Riley. If you have not done so, would you please rate and review The New Activist wherever you are listening to your podcasts? Giving us five stars and some encouraging words on there are hugely helpful. And also, it's a great place to recommend future guests. If there's anybody you think we should be chatting with, we will do our best to reach out to them and see if they would be a guest on the show. And uh, that would be that'd be really helpful. So rate and review the podcast. Thank you. The conversation that started here today will continue over on our social media, both Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram all have the same handle, newactivistis, and our website is newactivist.is. A huge thanks to Propaganda who scored today's episode. Music, merch, coffee, all of that can be found at prophiphop.com. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted and directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Cole Arthur Riley, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koppeltz. Take care, friends.